Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We kind of started this last week looking at verses 1 through 3. Uh, We're going to look at the rest of the chapter today. I'm going to read the whole chapter, keep it in context. And we'll make some comments on it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purposes and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. But may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. We're a teaching church. That comes with advantages. It comes with a little bit of baggage uh, from time to time. We place a high value on the word of the Lord. We place a high value on doctrine and theology. Those are not necessarily... Uh, popular terms in the cultural church today. But when we come together, we want to hear from the Word of God. We want to hear what He has to say about how we are to live our lives. We want to hear the truth of God. Uh, For me, that makes preparing for a sermon relatively easy. I don't have to come up with a message. I don't have to make a sermon up. All I have to do is study the passage and then share with you what it says. Some people are comfortable with that. Some people are a little less comfortable with it. That's okay. So we have this advantage that our our faith and our trust lie in the Word of God. Our faith and our trust lie in the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. And and we can be comfortable with that. There are churches that think a little bit differently. And you know what? That's okay. It's all right. 
you, you know, I, I think we have a tendency to think that our church is the best, and I, I do think our church is good, but there are other churches around town that are convening this morning that believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, confess Him, have repented and turned towards Him. You know what? It's all right. They're saved. Uh, they are our brothers and sisters. We'll see them in heaven. We may worship a little bit differently. We may practice things, our, our, to coin a phrase, ecclesiology, uh, theological term, the way we, we do our church may be a little bit different, but there's a lot of texture. There's a lot of diversity in the, in the body of Christ, and it's okay. Some people are going to come here and find this to be desirable. Some people are going to take a taste of us and move on. And, and we'll receive some people that took a taste of another church and decided to move on. This is all okay. Those are all good things. Uh, but we do have a tendency uh, to personalize our churches, sometimes put a characteristic to them. So from time to time, we'll hear things like, well, you know, you're a bit too legalistic. Every now and then I'll run into somebody in town that will say, well, you know, we like what you and Scott do, but it's a bit too much scripture. We're looking for something a little less. We don't want a 45-minute sermon. We're looking for a 25-minute sermon. Well, that's okay, too. And, and we've got to be careful not to be offended by those people would characterize us in that manner. But we also have to be careful not to feel superior to them. We don't want to be judged. Uh, we don't want people to, to uh, pigeonhole us into a characterization of who we are, and we should not do that to them either. So there are good advan advantages, and there are some disadvantages to be a teaching church. Uh, you know, we, we're, we don't do some of the more popular things. There's nothing wrong with them. We've just decided not to do them. You know, we're, we're a particular flavor, and God has made that our personality, and, and we're, we're, we're pleased with it. But here's, here's a question we need to ask ourselves. So, because we're a teaching church, we can go a little deep from time to time. It can be a little challenging from time to time. And what are you going to do with that? What do you do with the teaching? <laughs> you know, do you live your theology? Do we come together on Sunday morning? Do we hear a good lesson about the Word of God? Do we, we, we learn about the, just, the doctrine of justification? Do we learn about the doctrine of substitutionary atonement? Uh, and does it impact us? Does it change us? Does it change the way we portray ourselves to the world? How we get along with the people that are outside these walls? Do we live our theology or do we just listen to it? Uh, now, I don't know, because uh, I know a lot of you, I've counseled with a lot of you, I've spent time with a lot of you, and I know that you are living your theology. That's, that's a fantastic thing. But we need to ask ourselves, how does what I understand about the character and nature of God look on Monday morning or Monday afternoon? How does it look when I'm in the hallway at school? How does it look when I'm sitting in a classroom? How does it look when I'm in my job? How does it look when I'm online? Am I a reflection of who Jesus Christ is? Am I putting God on display? Am I taking all the good teaching that I receive from the church and the leaders of the church and the teachers in the church, and is it flowing out of me as I walk from the doors of the church? Paul lived his theology. We're seeing that played out right here. Paul lived in, in a tough environment, didn't he? We talked about it last week. Okay, The, the church was new. Uh, it was spreading pretty dramatically. There's a map in your uh, bulletins. The front map, the black and white map, will show you how the church was spreading in the first century. 
It was spreading very rapidly, but all of a sudden, they were running into some resistance. Now, they had problems with the, the, the Jews at first because, you know, they were saying, well, everything that Jews believed has been good up until now, but it, now that the Messiah is here, things have changed a little bit. So the Jews were putting a lot of pressure on the church, but Nero wanted to build a new Rome. He wanted it to be a show place, so he burned the city down secretly, and when that didn't go, to go over so well with the general population, he blamed the Christians. Now they're getting, they're getting hit from all sides. And, and, and it's worse with the persecution that Nero brings because he's arresting people, torturing them, and executing them just for being Christians. Now, Paul's in that environment. And so he casts around him and he realizes that the church is under attack. And because he's a leader in the church, Paul is under attack. How does he live his theology when Rome is burning? And Nero is blaming him and Timothy. Paul paid a horrific cost to play his theology out. And, and now, now he's in a Roman prison. And Paul knows what he's in the prison for. He's been in prison before. Hadn't been a big threat. He's been content in all things. But this time, they're going to kill him. And, and Nero and his guards are not just out to kill Paul. They're going to torture him. They're going to do everything they can to make him scream and maybe recant his faith. Paul's seen what's going on out there, and now they're coming for him. Paul knows he's not going to get out of prison alive. Matter of fact, they could come for him at any minute. And in the middle of all that pressure, Paul sits down and writes this letter to Timothy. And it's not a letter, get me out of here. It's not a letter of I'm being unjustly treated. It's not a letter to make everybody aware of how dire Paul's plight is. Look at the way this letter starts out. An apostle, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. What kind of plea is that? So Paul has lived his theology. He's acting it out even as he writes the letter. And he wants to know if Timothy is going to live his. He wants to know if Timothy is going to live the theology that Paul taught him. So in this, in this first chapter of this letter, this first section of the letter, Paul's going to offer a little bit of encouragement. He's going to offer a challenge. He's going to talk a lot about Timothy's faith. In verses 3 through 7, he's going to detail the evidence of Timothy's faith. In 8 through 14, he'll talk about the source of Timothy's faith. And in 15 through 18, he's going to talk about the danger of Timothy's faith. So, the name of our sermon today, I've got, to, got to be honest with you, I changed, I did pastor's prerogative, I changed the name of the sermon, this is not what's in your, your bulletin, but I, I also have to be honest with you, I watched an episode of Lost in Space this week. Anybody seen the new one? One or two people? It's not bad. Yet when I get time, I hope to see the rest of the season. So I've decided to name this sermon, Danger, Timothy, Danger. <laughs> see the robot. This is part two of our series, Guard the Gospel. So let's take a look at what Paul has to say about the evidence of Timothy's faith. He starts out with it in verse 3. 
Paul says he's thankful. He's thankful to God. He's thankful to God for his situation. I mean, he's looking around him. He knows how bad it is. But Paul has said in the past that he is content in all things. He has to be content here. If he's going to live his theology, he's going to be thankful for this situation. He tells Timothy, thank you. And he's thankful for Timothy. Now, again, this isn't a, Timothy, wait till you hear what's happening to me. Timothy, do something. Timothy, I'm being treated unfairly. He said, Timothy, I'm thankful for you. And he says, not only am I thankful for you, but I'm spending some time praying for you. Now, I, I don't know how you would do if you were in prison. I know what I would do if I were in prison and thought they would come for me in any minute. I'd be spending all my time trying to get out. I'd be spending all my time thinking about myself. I'd be spending all my time thinking about how much this is going to hurt and what new way Nero has come up to torture those people who are Christians and put them on display to all the people that Nero himself has betrayed and now wants to make an example of of the Christians. Paul says, Timothy, I'm thankful for you, and I've been praying for you, brother. You can't imagine what was going through Timothy's heart when he hears this. And he remembers, he remembers a poignant moment in his relationship with Timothy. Paul had gone to Ephesus. He was on his way back to Jerusalem. There had been prophecies over Paul about not going to Jerusalem. This isn't going to be very pleasant. The people in Ephesus heard about it. They, they were trying to encourage him not to go, not prophetically, but as a way of saying, we don't want to see you get hurt. Paul said, no, I got to go. And there's this little scene in Acts, uh, I think it's 20, where Paul and the, el- the leaders of the Ephesian church meet on the beach to say farewell. Now, I just had a family reunion with extended family up in New York City, people I haven't seen for over 50 years. And I remembered in our youth, they used to come to Ohio and they'd, they'd arrive on this train and they'd spend six or eight weeks with us. And the time that we spent together was always fabulous. They were a little bit older than me. I looked up to them. I thought they were cool. I thought they were really neat. Uh, and then I, I would, every time I can tell you when we took them back to the train station, me and my dad would load them in the car, we'd take them to the train station, we'd stand there on the platform, and I, I mean, we're a bunch of Greeks, we would hug each other, and we would stand there and cry, all of us would cry, because we were sad to be parting from each other, we were looking forward to the next time we saw each other, and it would be a very emotional moment. Well, Paul has that moment with the Ephesian church, on that beach next to the Mediterranean Sea. And Timothy's there. And Paul says, I'm thankful to God for you. I'm praying for you. And I remember your tears. I remember how deeply you were moved. He wants Timothy to to understand how much Timothy means to him. And he also remembers that there's a tradition of faith in Timothy, and he wants to remind Timothy of this. You, you, I remember the faith of your grandmother. I remember the faith of your mother. And you know something, Timothy? I've seen that same faith in you. I've seen the evidence of that faith in you. You know how faithful your grandmother was. You know how faithful your mother was. And I've seen that in you, Timothy. It's been handed down. Now, this is a little bit of an unusual situation because Timothy had a Gentile father. You can see that in Acts 16.1. Okay? And in, in that environment, in the Roman culture, because there were so many gods and so many different religions, the father would determine the faith and the religion of the children, regardless of who he married. Somehow, I think it's by God's grace, somehow in Timothy's house, the mother determined his faith and religion. She was Hebrew. So she raised 
Timothy and the Hebrew faith. She raised him, we're going to find out, to understand and, and, and memorize the Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures. So Timothy has inherited that faith. Paul has seen it in him. Paul tells him that he's seen that same faith. But in verse 6, he says to Timothy, you've got the faith, I've seen it, but you're going to have to work at it, Timothy. Fan into flame that faith that's been given to you. Now, we don't know exactly why Paul has told him that, but perhaps Timothy has run into some difficulty. Perhaps he's been criticized. Uh, You know, he's a young guy. He's been left in, in charge of the church at Ephesus. Perhaps there are people that think that he's too young. Uh, to be able to do this. Perhaps he's, he's spoken a sermon and somebody stood up and said, well, we don't agree with you, Timothy. Uh, perhaps somebody has risen up in the church and has opposed Timothy and, and his leadership. We don't know exactly what happened. All we know is that it seems as though Timothy's gone through some problems and has a few struggles. But Paul wants Timothy to know that whatever gift he has, God has given to him. But it's not Timothy's gift, it's God's gift. And that gift has been affirmed in Timothy by ordination. Now, a couple years ago, I went through the ordination process with the EFCA. Uh, We had an ordination ceremony here on Sunday night. Uh, We had a number of pastors from the community gather here. We had a number of pastors from the EFCA gather and at the end of that ceremony I knelt down and they put their hands on me and prayed over me and asked God to bless me and I was ordained. We were just following the pattern that we see in the New Testament that that blessing and authority are conveyed by other leaders of the church. Timothy has received this ordination and Paul wants to remind him not only has he seen the faith but he's been blessed by the Lord. He's been blessed by other church leaders. So Timothy has this ministry given to him by God, one that is recognized by godly men and women and is blessed and empowered by God. Now, because Timothy's saved, he has the indwelling Holy Spirit. So he's been given this ministry and the Spirit enables Timothy to operate in that ministry. Now, that's what we see in verse 7. He operates in power, love, and self-control. Now, these are gifts given him by the Holy Spirit, but they're gifts that need to be moderated by Timothy. So, some participation is required in these gifts. He has to operate in the power he's been given and wield it in a godly way. Not in a a man-made way, not in a man-perceived way, but he has to exercise his power in a godly way for the benefit of the people that are placed under his authority. He has to love in a godly way. And this is agape love that we're talking about. Now, this is a hard concept to explain because as human beings, we, we have a very difficult time with unconditional love. Now, the technical definition for this type of love is love that originates on behalf of the lover without regard to the qualifications of the beloved. So what we're talking about is unconditional love. Timothy is to love in an unconditional manner and be a reflection of who God is. And Timothy is to exercise some self-control. Some self-control. This is a problem we all have. All the attributes of God are in Timothy 
Uh, he has to work at expressing them, and he has to work at minimizing his own desires, minimizing his own impulsiveness. So he has to control his physical and his spiritual appetites. He has to control his temper. He has to control not just who he loves, but how he loves. And then he has to spread that love to everybody, in particular to those who are unlovable. This is going totally against our nature. Timothy has to participate in this if he's going to function in the fullness of these blessings. And the question is, can Timothy do this? Can Timothy do this? Even if Rome, if Rome is burning and Nero is blaming Paul and Timothy. See, the reason Paul was arrested is because he's the leader of the church. Timothy could be looking at that going, wait a minute. <laughs> he's handing me the ministry. They're going to come after me. How does Timothy live his theology when they come knocking on his door? Quite a challenge. So for now, the evidence of Timothy's faith is the witness of godly people, the presence of the Holy Spirit in and through him, and he should respond to this in an outwardly godly way. And that comes with the self-control, the way he loves, and the way he wields his power. So that, that's how it looks on the outside, but, but Paul's demanding a change on the inside as well, an inner response. And we see that in verses 8 through 14, where we, show, we see the source of Timothy's faith. In verse 8, he says, therefore, he starts out with the word therefore, and, and that points us back to these gifts that Timothy's been given, the, the power, love, and self-control. They should have an effect on the inner man. And the first thing they should do is they should temper him. So Paul says he should not be ashamed. And there's two things that Timothy should not be ashamed of. One is the testimony of the Lord. And we can look at that and try to analyze it and try to make it mean something that it doesn't. But when we hear the testimony of the Lord, we're talking about the testimony of Jesus Christ who was sent to earth to die for our sins and was resurrected to give us victory over sin and death. And if we repent and turn towards him, then we will have eternal life. He's talking about the gospel. He's saying, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. I know that the environment that you're in is really hostile towards the gospel. But this is when you've got to be bolder than you've ever been before. This is not the time to be quiet. This is not the time to hide in the corner. When people's emotions are at a height and when the world is angry at you is when you You've got to stand up and say, I believe in Jesus Christ no matter what you do to me. See, that's what Paul's been doing. Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. God's given you these gifts to proclaim it. Don't hide it under a bushel basket. And Paul says, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of me because I'm in prison. Now, we, we kind of get that because we know Paul's story, right? I want you to think about something, though. It's the first thing you think when you hear somebody you know is in prison. <gasps> I wonder what they did wrong. Tell me what they did wrong. Did you hear what happened to John Smith? He's in prison. And whoever you're talking to, I don't know, what did he do? Well, he, I don't know, but it must have been something bad. <laughs> See, when we hear about somebody in prison, we automatically assume 
that they've done something bad. We have some level of trust in the justice system. They've probably had a trial and been convicted or they've confessed to something and now they're in prison. This is what's happening to Paul. He's in prison. We know he's there unjustly, but not the general population. So if you read Paul's other writings, every time he runs around, people are saying, you know what, he's not much of an apostle. He's too short. He's got a squeaky voice. He's, you know, he's got, he's got all these troubles he's been in. Apostles don't have troubles like that. And you know, now he's in prison. What kind of apostle goes to prison? God wouldn't let his people go to prison. Doesn't matter that Paul's been in prison a number of times and, and a number of times has been miraculously delivered. Now he's in prison again and they're killing Christians. Paul's saying, don't be ashamed of me because I'm in prison. I'm here by God's will. I'm thankful that I'm in prison. You can figure that one out. Don't be ashamed about the gospel. Don't be ashamed about the godly men you're associated with. He says, don't be ashamed. As a matter of fact, share in my suffering. Now, there's a calling for you. Timothy, I want to turn the church over to you. Oh, fantastic. By the way, you're going to have to share in my suffering. I'm not so sure about that. Share in my suffering. Do it for the sake of the gospel. The only way you're going to be able to do this is to do it by the, the grace and the goodness and, and power of God, verse 9. So he says, don't be ashamed. Share in my suffering. And listen to this. Follow the pattern of sound words. Now, doctrine and theology was under attack back then. Uh, the Jews were trying to modify the gospel. They were trying to add to it. The, the Gentiles didn't want to hear it. It was foolishness to them. This whole idea of the cross was foolishness. And Paul says, follow the pattern of sound words. Follow the pattern of sound doctrine. Teach sound theology everywhere you go. People need to understand how they're saved and why they're saved and how all this works and teach it. That's what I've been trying to do, Timothy. That's exactly what Paul's been trying to do is teach doctrine, teach theology. It wasn't a popular thing back then and it's not such a popular thing right now either. Just give me Jesus. Have an argument with that person sometime. Just give me Jesus. Oh, by the way, that's a theological statement. I'm not talking about theology. I'm just talking about Jesus. Well, that's theological too. That's what you people do. You always make it about doctrine. I don't want doctrine. I want love. Oh, that's theological too. That's the environment Paul was in. Then he says, guard the deposit entrusted to you in verse 14. Now watch what happened here. Timothy is charged with guarding the deposit. And the deposit, he's talking about all these things, the gifts, the, uh, the power, the love, the self-control, the empowerment by the Holy Spirit, uh, the enablement to do these things. Um, guard this deposit entrusted you in verse 14, but in verse 12, he tells them that God will guard the deposit. Now, that's not a conflict. They're both going to guard the deposit. God, guard will guard the deposit. Guard will guard... God will guard... I had this problem in the first service, too. <laughs> God will guard the church. God will guard his word. We have to understand it. In particular today, we have to understand that the church is not in threat of being abolished. The word of God is not going to go away, brothers and sisters. 
So everything that rises up is not a threat against the church. And we know that's true because the church is there in Revelation, isn't it? It's there in the end. God's word will not fade away. That's what God's word tells us. So when we start acting like everything's a threat to the church and that God needs us to defend the church, we kind of miss the opportunity to use the gospel. Guard, God will guard his church and his word. But Timothy is responsible for guarding his portion of it. Timothy will participate. He will work side by side with God. They will be co-laborers. God will ultimately guard it. Timothy will guard the portion he's been given authority over. So Timothy has to be active in this. So we see that Timothy has this enablement to do this by the power of the indwelling spirit. And the power of the indwelling spirit comes to Timothy through his faith in Jesus Christ. The source of Timothy's faith is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Timothy can rely on him. But he needs to understand that he's been given this position, he's been given these gifts, he's been given this power, not for Timothy's sake, but for the sake of the gospel. Now listen to me carefully. Those gifts are not there for the sake of the individuals in the church. Hear me on this. Timothy's not there to make them better people. He's not there to give them a better life. He's not there to help them find their identity. He's not there to establish them in their happiness or their prosperity or their health. Now, all those things can come, but that's not the reason that Timothy's been given this this deposit to guard. The reason he's been given this deposit to guard is for the sake of the gospel. It's for the sake of the gospel. And anybody that tells you anything different, you have to be really careful with. If God wanted you to know your true identity, he'd just take you to heaven and show you. If God wanted you to be prosperous, he would just take you to heaven where the streets are lined with gold. Amen? If God wanted you to be healthy, he would just have you die right now and rise up in a perfected and glorified body. So the goal of the church is not a personal goal for our personal benefit. The goal of the church is the gospel. And Timothy needs to understand that all of these things that God is doing through Paul, through him, through the church in Asia, through the church in Ephesus, are for the sake of the gospel. Now you get a hold of that, and all of a sudden, the gospel becomes something absolutely beautiful. And Timothy's calling is absolutely astounding. But it can be dangerous. Let's look at the danger of Timothy's faith, 15 through 18. He says, all in Asia have turned away. Now, you've got another map, uh, the other side of the map that was uh, the, the color map on the back. It'll show you where Asia is. It's eastern Turkey. And we've got to be careful with terminology here. I was talking to a dear brother uh, a number of months ago, and uh, we were working our way through some difficult passages in Scripture. And at one point he said, I'm a literalist. I said, really, what does that mean? He said, when the Bible says what it says, that's what it says. I said, well, yeah, that's true, but it doesn't always say what you think it says. He said, no, it doesn't. And we were in a passage where John, the, the Apostle John, had used the word all. He said, all means all. 
I said, it doesn't always mean all. And he, he just got really upset at me. He goes, how could all mean anything but all? I said, well, you know, you've got to look at the context. You've got to look at what's going on. And this is what we have right here. All in Asia have deserted me. Now, I, I know that everybody in Asia hasn't deserted Paul. Everybody in Asia hasn't turned away. And I'll show you why we know that in just a moment. Uh, but Paul is most probably talking about most of the Aseans that were in Rome around him at the time he was arrested. They probably let him down. They've not supported him. They haven't come to see him. They, have, they, they really haven't even revealed the fact that uh, they're acquainted with him. So th there's a little bit of a hyperbole here to denote that most of or many or nearly all, and we would kind of use the same thing today if we did it in context, people would understand. So he said they all turned away. Now, Paul's not saying that these people are condemned. He's not saying that they've lost the faith. He's saying they've turned away from him. They've turned away from supporting him. They're ignoring him. They're disassociating themselves from him. They may have been ashamed of, of Paul's imprisonment. They may be some of those people that don't want to be associated with somebody who's gone to prison. Uh, they may be ashamed of the gospel. Maybe they've looked around them and said, you know what, Nero's uh, executing all of the Christians. I don't want to be executed too, so I'm just going to stand here in the corner and be quiet and watch all this go by. There's no reason I need to risk everything. There's no reason I need to risk my home, my job, my kids, my family, my very life. I can just be quiet and let it be. These people aren't condemned. They're not doomed. They're just not walking in the fullness of their faith. And there are two prominent men mentioned here. And maybe, maybe they've stirred everybody else up. Maybe they've been uh, uh, implicating uh, believers and saying you need to stay away from Paul. You need to stay away from this gospel. Now's not the time to do this. Your first obligation is to your family. Your first obligation is to your home. What are you going to do if you lose your job? Maybe they're listening to him. We don't know. And the, one of the ironies here, this would not have escaped Paul, is that region you see in your map that's marked Asia was probably one of the most productive regions that Paul had been in. Uh, if productive means kicked out of and beaten up in fewer cities than the other regions. <laughs> so Paul would have seen that. You know who was from Asia? Timothy. Timothy. Ephesus is in Asia. The Ephesian church is in Asia. See, that's how we know that everybody in Asia didn't turn away from Paul. So that has to be taken in context. Timothy hasn't turned away. We find out that Onesiphorus hasn't turned away. Everybody's abandoned Paul. You know, he, he sacrifices everything for the, the sake of the gospel. That's the danger of walking in faith. Paul has been committed. Paul has been unwavering. He's been totally devoted to the gospel, but his closest friends have abandoned him. He's lost everything. He has no books. He has no coat. He's alone. He's about to be executed. And all of his work, all, everything that he's produced during his entire career, from the moment he got saved to the moment they take him to wherever they're going to take him to kill him, has produced very, very little for Paul. Paul's getting no benefit from this. He's been beaten up, he's been stoned, he's been shipwrecked, people hate him, people are abandoning him, now they're going to kill him. 
And I don't think, I don't think that bothered Paul. I mean, Paul's theology was we need to be thankful in all things. Paul's personal conviction was I try to be content in all things. There's no reason to think he's not doing that here. I mean, he started the letter with thanks, mercy and grace and peace to you. Here's what Paul understood. Everything he did from the moment he was saved until this moment was for the glory of God, not the glory of Paul. He did it for the sake of the name of the Father, not for the benefit of Paul. He did it for the sake of the gospel, not so that Paul would have a great reputation. If he's doing it for his own reputation, it didn't work. Everything Paul has done has produced more glory for the Father. And you know what? It still is, isn't it? Here we are, we're reading it. But there's, there's no lack of hope. Paul has some hope. He has Timothy, beloved Timothy. We'll hear later that Luke is with him. And then, then he writes this, 16, 17, and 18. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me. was not ashamed of my chains. He said, well, here's one guy that wasn't ashamed that I was in prison. Matter of fact, when he got to Rome, he began looking for me. I mean, he was really looking for me, and he found me. And, you know, you have to understand the Roman prison system to understand how difficult it would be to find a prisoner in there. You literally had to go into each Roman prison and look because they didn't keep these records. When they threw you in jail, that was it. And Nisiphorus finds him. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. He said, I've got hope. Found out who my true friends were, and I'm thankful for that. I give God the glory for that. So, there we've got it. You've seen the evidence of Paul's faith. The testimony of those closest to him. We see the source of God's faith. Jesus Christ. We see the, the danger in, Timothy's faith, in Paul's faith. He, you could lose everything. And he's telling Timothy, all this is for you. The, the, the same thing is going to happen to you. You're going to go through the same thing. And see, there's this, there's this challenge that's just beneath the surface in the letter. There's this question that's just beneath the surface. Paul has done everything he can to equip Timothy. He's taught him theology. Timothy's learned it. He's absorbed it. Now, can Timothy walk in it? Will Timothy live his theology? When he, when he partakes in the sufferings of Paul, who partook in the sufferings of Christ, will Timothy be faithful? Will he depend on God, or will he depend on himself? Well, that's, that's great. That's great, and... It's good for Timothy. We see that Timothy's learned a lesson. But you know, the subtitle for the series is 2 Timothy, Then and Now. What does this mean to us today? How, how, how do we interpret this? Listen very carefully. Like Timothy, each of us that are born again, each of us that know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we've been given a ministry. And we are to function in those ministries in a godly expression of power. Not for our own gain, but for the glory of God. Uh, an expression of power that puts God on display and the love of Christ 
on display in everything that we do. We have to express sacrificial love, godly power and sacrificial love. Love that is not self-centered, not love that is love that is not self-elevating, love that is not self-satisfying, but love that will pour everything out. Paul's about to say, I'm ready to be poured out. Uh, like a drink offering. Our type of love should be pouring out for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the glory of God. We're called to do this. And we should be, brothers and sisters, we should be self-controlled. Now, I don't know about you, but this is the hardest part for me. I don't always have good self-control. Sometimes I have bad thoughts. Sometimes I have bad thoughts about people. Sometimes I'm judgmental. I was down at the festival yesterday and standing there for a half an hour and realized I'm judging people as they're walking by. Oh, that person has tattoos. They must not be a very good person. Oh, that person, look at that person. You'd think they'd take better care of themselves. And, and all I was really doing was, well, I don't have any tattoos. I'm better than them. I take better care of myself than they do of them. Okay, and, and I, I stand here repenting, oh Lord, forgive me for being judgmental, forgive me for looking at someone else and finding all the reasons that I'm better than them. Charles Spurgeon said, when you get upset when somebody criticizes you, you shouldn't be so upset because you're far worse than you think you are. And we are. Self-controlled. We have to control our, our uh, tendency to be Righteous, self-righteous. We have to control our tendency to be judgmental. We have to control our tendency to get angry. It's not the gospel. We have to control our spiritual and our physical appetites. Submit them to the Father. Let the Holy Spirit be our guide and our convictor in these things. Now all of this should have an impact inside us. We should not be ashamed of the gospel. We should be boldly proclaiming. And I've got to tell you something. We're in an environment that's not too different than Paul was in. The world's turning against us. I told you last week, the ground is shifting beneath our feet. Paul saw it happening. We need to see it happening too. This is not a time to be timid. This is a time to be bold. This is for such a time as this, the church has been called. The church has been formed. It should be coming out of our mouths. It should be coming out of our behavior. We don't hide it, we proclaim it. And we should not be ashamed of those who are associated with the gospel. And you know what? We may suffer for it. We can only do this by the the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, but we may be suffering for it. We may lose everything for this. And in the middle of it all, we should follow the pattern of sound words. We should be not just studying our theology, but we should be living it. It should come flowing from us like rivers of living water. To do that, we have to know it. We know that God will guard the deposit he's given the earth. Will we work side by side with him? Will we do our part? We've been given these incredible gifts, brothers and sisters. Power, love, and self-control. We have to do our part. We have to do our participation in it. All for the sake of the gospel. Not for our own sake. Can we live our theology? Can we walk 
in the essence of the gospel, can we be the love of Christ to a world that's filled with hate? Can we be peacemakers to a world that's filled with tension? Can we bring love to a world that doesn't want our love? Christ allowed himself to be nailed to the cross and looked down on the guards that nailed him and said, God, forgive him. Do we have that capability? That's what it's going to take to reach the unlovable, to reach the unreachable, to change those that can't be changed. You watch what God does with our willingness to walk in our theology. Let's pray.